Let me pray, and um, we'll climb into our time in the Word together. God, we are thankful for this time together. We're thankful that we can sing our hearts out, knowing that you are King and Lord and sovereign and great and master. Lord, I pray that the uh, attitude of our heart this morning is enjoying all those things. I pray that you'll find us attentive. I pray that you'll find us engaged. I pray for the little ones that are in with us today. I pray that you will uh, give them an extra measure of self-control and attentiveness so that their parents can hear from you and so, in fact, they can hear from you. Lord, we look forward to the time that we're about to spend sort of connecting two truths this morning in one big, awesome reality. I pray that it'll impact us, change us, grow us, give us a filter and a lens for seeing the world, for translating or at least diagnosing our situations and problems, and that'll shape us into being the people of God that will bring glory to you. We love you, Lord. We turn this time over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'd like for you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. As you're turning there, I'm going to give you sort of a plan for the morning. In some ways, we have two different things we're engaging this morning. That at least for the first, I don't know how many minutes, for probably the majority of our time, they will look like they're two completely separate, unrelated things. And then toward the end of our time together in the Word, you're going to see that these intersect. And I hope that you're going to see God's sovereignty and God's timing in leading us to where we are in Hebrews with what we're about to do in 1 and 2 Timothy and even Titus. This morning, we're going to begin our time in the Word with um, not quite the charge. The charge is going to come later, but some truths that have to do with ordaining an elder. The reason we're going to do that this morning is because this is Lance Keeling's, Lance and Sarah Keeling's last Sunday with us before they deploy back to Mexico. Teopisca, Mexico is the name of the city. It's in a state called Chiapas, the southernmost state in Mexico. Tell you a little bit about Chiapas, just a very brief summary. It's not Mexico as you would typically think of Mexico. When I think of Mexico and I think missions, I think reached, honestly. But Chiapas is a little bit different. Chiapas is the southernmost state of Mexico, and in fact, it's the only state that's still on the voice of the martyrs, or that's on the voice of the martyrs, because of Protestant-Catholic sort of conflict, and then a group, another group of sort of guerrillas called the Zapatistas. That's where Lance and Sarah Keeling have spent the last few years, and that's where they're going back. They've been there the last few years doing ministry as part of a local church there. And they're going back this time, though, to plant the church because we want to be about the work of planting the church where it's weak or non-existent. And just the time that Lance and Sarah have been there, they've recognized that the church is weak there. You could say non-existent, although there are lots of church or lots of religion, I should say say that way. Sort of a Mayan-influenced Catholicism. So they're going back there to take the message of the gospel, of a sovereign God and a sovereign work and a finished work in Christ, an an alien righteousness that we wear, sort of this new message in some ways into this context. So this Sunday, we are ordaining Lance as an elder, in some ways an elder abroad. Now, before you think, well, this is just for Lance, I want to sort of escort you into this and realize that in some ways, this message is for Lance. It's for Sarah but it's also for our current elders, and it's also for those elders-to-be, and it's also for the body to know how to pray for their elders and how to even hold their elders accountable. So the first part of this message will be about Lance uh, being appointed or ordained as an elder. The second part of the message will be in Hebrews, and you're going to see that these come together with God's sovereign fingerprints all over it. Okay, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Just to give you some, just a a summary of terminology, elder, pastor, overseer, and bishop are used interchangeably 
by Paul and others in our New Testament. Now, we don't call ourselves bishop, but you could. You wouldn't be improper if you wanted to call me Bishop Ben. <laughs> might be weird, might sound kind of Catholic, but it's not improper. Those terms are used interchangeably. Elder, pastor, overseer, bishop. You may wonder why we refer to our pastors here as elders. Elder sort of fits with, at least in practice, with the notion of plural leadership. I grew up in a church setting where there was one elder, and he was called the pastor. And then there were deacons that sort of served in the role of peers, sort of, sort of holding the pastor accountable. Um, it doesn't look like it's a biblical model. Did God use it? You bet he used it, and he is using it now. But it looks like God's best is plural leadership in the form of elders where there are men serving alongside each other who are all holding each other accountable, who are sharpening each other, who are a complement of gifts and insights and experiences and wisdom that come together as greater than some of their parts. I think it's very appropriate for you to consider, uh, this has kind of been the practice here and is a reflection of some of our, our, maybe our history. A lot of y'all refer to me as Pastor Ben, and then there's Steve and Scott, and Brad. Biblically, the way we're handling leadership in this church, there's Pastor Ben, there's Pastor Steve, there's Pastor Brad, and there's Pastor Scott. I'm starting to talk to my kids about how they, or I'm addressing my kids uh, in their presence as Pastor Scott, or Pastor Steve, or Pastor Brad. Very appropriate, because this church is led by four pastors. Okay, now let's get into the requirements or the qualifications for elders or overseers. First Timothy chapter 3 I think what I'm going to do is just grab sort of the highlights in this passage. We're going to move pretty expeditiously dealing with these. And then I want to give some honest and maybe frightening verbs for you or words or adjectives. Uh, but we're going to start with the qualifications first. Aspiration is a qualification for leadership as an elder. You shouldn't ask someone to lead as an elder who does it sort of grudgingly. I don't know if I want to do that. In some weird way, they need to aspire to it. Now, how they aspire to it or why they aspire to it needs to be searched because you don't want them to aspire to it because they want the prestige because that doesn't last very long. You don't want them to do it because they want the power because that's not the way it works. You want them to aspire to it in some ways because that's how they want to be spent. No pressure should be used that would result in an unwilling, half-hearted service. The elder also should be above reproach. This man should live in a way that gives no cause for others to think badly of the church or the faith of our Lord, or faith in our Lord. This has to do more with a person's reputation. The focus here is not on a person's relationship with the Lord, but how others see him. And a guy would be disqualified if the community and if other folks saw him as a dirtbag. He should be the husband of one wife. The word here, emphasis, is on the word one. As in, he should have one wife, not more than one. This doesn't necessarily mean that this person should not be divorced. When Paul writes of divorce, he calls it divorce. This would be a weird place for him to be ambiguous or unclear. He's speaking about a one-woman man is what he's speaking of here. A man that has eyes for his wife only. The elder should be a husband of one wife with eyes and affections for his wife exclusively. This man should be temperate or self-controlled. Um, this temperance, uh, there, there, there's, a little, there, there's a reference later that said that he shouldn't be a drunkard. Now, that would be very specific in temperance, that he shouldn't be given to excess in alcohol. This is more general and extends over other things other than wine or drink. The standard here is one of self-control and mastery of his appetites. Wine would surely not be the only thing that a person can misuse, right? This man should be sensible, prudent, reasonable, sober-minded, this man should be of sound mind, having good judgment, implying that he sees things as they really are, that he knows himself well, that he understands people, what they're thinking and how they respond. Nobody can read minds, but an elder should have an insight into what's going on in someone's life. 
and attentiveness. We might say that this person needs to be in touch with realities so that there are not any great gaps between what you see in yourself and what others see in you. That should be um, part of an elder's qualifications and character. He should be respectable and honorable, a person who handles himself in situations so as to not step on toes unnecessarily. He should be hospitable. An elder should be one who loves strangers. That is, one who's given to being kind to newcomers and makes them feel at home. A person whose home is open for ministry and who does not shrink back from having guests. Not a secretive person. There's no place for being secretive. Should be a man who's able to teach. This doesn't necessarily mean that this person is really great in front of a group of people. It means that this man is able to unpack the word and guide people in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. He should not be addicted to wine. Really, he shouldn't be addicted to anything harmful or debilitating or worldly. Now, that doesn't say that he should not touch wine. It says addiction and overuse. The, land, or the, the, the context where Lance and Sarah are going back to, this is something that you should be aware of that you can be praying about, is there is a severe absence of men who are leading their families. And the reason the men are not leading their families is because they're drunk. These severe binges that last for weeks, maybe months at a time. And the hard part is to raise up men to follow Christ in that context because they're going in and out of this overuse and uh, misuse of alcohol. Lance and Sarah, from what I understand, have chosen to completely abstain given that reality of their context. But at least gives you some insight in how to pray for them and pray for that situation. They shouldn't be pugnacious or belligerent. Pugnacious is sort of a funny word. It shouldn't be argumentative, looking for a fight. When I hear that word, I think about a chihuahua. My dad's a veterinarian, so I think about things in terms of what type of breed is being described here. And chihuahua that just thinks that they can whip anybody's behind and is looking for a fight at any given moment, that should not be the character of the elder. His temper should be under control. He must not be given to quarreling or fighting. His feelings shouldn't be worn on his sleeve. He should not carry resentments or be hypercritical. He should be gentle. It's the opposite of pugnacious or belligerent. Inclined to tenderness and resort to toughness only when circumstances commend this form of love. He should be peaceable in the way that he communicates with people, bringing people together instead of dividing. Shouldn't be a lover of money. He should put the kingdom first in all, he do, all that he does, and his lifestyle should not reflect a, lo, a love of luxury. We haven't seen this in Lance and Sarah at all. In fact, pretty uh, Spartan. It should be a leader of a well-ordered household. The home is the proving ground for ministry. An elder can be disqualified if his family has no use for God. If his children walk away from the faith, an elder can be disqualified from his ministry. An elder should have submissive children, and it doesn't mean perfect children, or none of us would elder. It does mean that they should be well-disciplined, that they should not uh, blatantly disregard the instructions of their parents. At home, he should be a loving and responsible spiritual leader, and his wife should be respected and tenderly loved by her husband. Their relationship should be openly admirable, and it should show their little boys, in this case two, almost three, of them what the gospel looks like. The elder candidate and the elder in practice, the elder existing, should put their family first. Families do not get sacrificed on the altar of ministry. Should be a mature believer, not a new believer. The implication is that part of Christian seasoning is a humbling process and a growing protection against pride. We should see evidences in his life that humility is a fixed virtue. He should have a good reputation with outsiders. This is similar to being above reproach, but here it's made explicit that the outside unbelieving world is in view. Now, there are other qualifications in other passages. Honest and orderly children, this is in Titus. Humble, lover of goodness, just, devout holy, self-controlled. As I read these things, I look at myself, I look at Brad, I look at Steve, I look at Scott, and I go, nobody's qualified. 
The reality is this man does not exist. Christ is the only one that really fulfills all these things perfectly, except for being the husband of one wife. Of course, you could say that he's married to the bride faithfully. This man does not exist, but there are some men that have uncommon measures of these things, and that would be a likely elder candidate. I don't know the guy that maxes these out, but I know Jesus, and I know that Jesus ordains and appoints men who have uncommon measures. That's who we're talking about this morning in Lance. Now, aspiration is in place for Lance. I can tell you that. Uh, The last couple of elder meetings that we've had, Lance has brought this up. He said, you know, I've not been ordained as an elder or pastor, and I'm going to do the work of a pastor. He hasn't been pushy. He hasn't been aggressive. He hasn't been demanding. He just said, hey, I'd like for you to consider it. I'd like for you to pray about it. Aspiration is there. And aspiration is good. But Lance, you need to be advised about a few things. And our current elders need to be reminded about a few things. And our church needs to be reminded about how to pray for our elders. Because this is a terribly difficult work. Lance, you are stepping in harm's way. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. Paul writes to Timothy. He says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Some translations might say, fight the good fight. Lance, you need to know this. Our current elders need to know this, and the people of God need to know this. Leading others out of their comfort zone to engage war with flesh and world and pursuing real quality worship is a fight. The people you will lead in Teo Pisgah, the people here have flesh and world that fights back all the time, relentlessly. And it will break your heart when you've poured yourself into someone and you see them like a dog return to their own vomit. And I promise you they will. And what will break your heart even more is when you find yourself being the dog. That will break your heart as well. You fight the good fight in leading God's people to walk faithfully with Him. And you fight the good fight at the same time with your own flesh. And the world fights at you and wants to suck you in and eat your lunch as well. You are stepping in harm's way, bro. And it is a fight. Part of the fight, too, is laboring in the Word and running it through your life as you proclaim it to others. I'm going to tell you right now, it's easy to stand and preach a message that hasn't run you through. It doesn't deliver. It's more fact-exposing, and what will happen in your people is fact-collecting. You just become sort of an academic setting. But when the truth runs you through and undoes you and wrecks you and then rebuilds you to be more, more like Christ, it's war. And it hurts And it's difficult, but it's a worthy war. It's a good fight. It's good warfare. And the benefits far outweigh the costs. It's better to be fighting in the middle of God's will than relaxing on flowery beds of ease and out of his will. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 is the next word I want to look at. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, Lance other elders, future elders. Rather, train yourself for godliness. This word here, train yourself, is the word in Greek that's the word gumnazo. It's where we get the word gymnasium from. So the time that Lance has spent on the basketball court or in the weight room or in the gym or the time that any of you have spent in those sort of contexts, you can think of those sort of realities and connect them to spiritual work and pursuit of godliness. It takes discipline. We have some ladies right now in our church that are training for a half marathon. And those ladies know, as well as you should know, that they can't start training the week prior. They can't go out there the day before and try and have a cram session. doesn't work that way. Gumnazo takes planning and discipline and consistency over time. That's the character of the elder, training yourself with respect to godliness. Good training is daily and it's disciplined and I've found so far that to date it's best done in good company. Don't do it by yourself but find others to train with you in the respect to godliness. Let's continue reading in that passage. While bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. 
The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, to what end? The pursuit of godliness. We toil and strive. Because we have our hope set on the living God, who is Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. The word toil there is the word copiao, and it's where we get the word copious from. Copious, you can think of, chances are you've heard that word before. When someone says, you need to take copious notes in this lecture. You just envision someone taking copious notes. They've got a piece of paper, and they've got their head down, and they're listening to every word, and they're jotting it all down. They are paying attention because they know it matters. It's careful and serious work, the pursuit of godliness. We are to labor in teaching and preaching. The word that's used there in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, is the same exact word, copiao. Careful, tedious, difficult work that we're called to, especially in unpacking and proclaiming the Word of God. There's no room for sloppy. There's no room for standing and delivering on a given Sunday, sharing a sentimental story in an email. Copiao is the work of unpacking this Word in a life-changing way. The other word there for strive is the Greek word agonizomai. It's where we get the word agonize. We are to agonize over living godly. This is not a settle down and relax approach to Christian living and salvation. You are to agonize over your pursuit of godliness. And my prayer for you, Lance, is that you show your behind often enough that where you remember that your righteousness is an alien righteousness. What I've found in me and in others is the humility decays. And those little times where we show our behind are sweet escorts where we go, oh yeah, it's an alien righteousness. While we agonize over holiness and godliness, those times where we fail, we embrace them and go, oh yeah, I'm thankful that I wear an alien righteousness, that it's the work of Christ that covers me. That's a good, a good reminder. We train and toil and strive because our hope is set on the living God. Remember how that verse ends. We train and toil and strive all the while knowing that our hope is set on the living God. The next word is in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. These things in this context have to do with worldliness, worldly temptations, and especially money. Flee from those things. Pursue instead righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. The Greek word there for pursue means to focus on and lock on to these things like a heat-seeking missile. You can imagine what that would look like. A heat-seeking missile locking onto a plane. Wherever that plane goes, that missile is following it. That's the way we are to be as elders, locking on righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and meekness wherever it takes you. My encouragement there, Lance and other elders, and elders-to-be, and shepherds of families, and people of God, is to pursue the responsive. I've found that in myself, and sort of the natural scheme of things, is that we tend to throw good money after bad. Some of you who work at L3, or work in some sort of big business setting, I bet you've seen that before, where you have some sort of portion of the business that's languishing. So we're going to bolster that with money and resources instead of exploiting where things are growing. We think like that. When something is weak, we want to pour ourselves into fixing it. And it's just sort of the natural way of things. Throwing good money after bad, throwing good time after bad, Little phrases we've come up with. The squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? That's sort of the natural way, but it can't be for the elder. The elder's got to be looking for, like a heat-seeking missile, has got to be looking for the teachable. You've got to be looking for those who are pursuing righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and meekness. Jesus was spent in the direction of the blind and the sick who were listening. He didn't spend himself on the Pharisees who said, huh, you saying we're blind? We see just fine. He was spent on those who were listening. I was first exposed to this, this sort of you might call general revelation, through my time in the Marine Corps. Used to, long time ago, when in armies fought, it was head-on-head frontal attack. You think about the Civil War, Gettysburg, 
Hundreds, thousands of people just dropping dead. The people that win are the people that have the most soldiers. That's not the way we fight. The kingdom of heaven works differently. In the Marine Corps, what we found is a little small unit like the Marine Corps, we have to fight smart. We can't have the Hamburger Hills anymore. We've got to have what's called maneuver warfare. And instead of spending all our people on something that they're all going to die on, we want to exploit enemy gaps. Instead of throwing good money after bad, good effort after bad, we want to find, I bet you've heard this before, where God is moving and get on board. That's the concept and the mindset behind this. Pursuing like a heat-seeking missile, the teachable. You will always have an element of your ministry that's tending to the unteachable, pleading with the unteachable, begging them to respond to faith in Christ or begging them to obey and walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. You will always have that as a character of your ministry, but don't be spent in that direction. Be spent on the teachable and the hungry. Pursue them like a heat-seeking missile. And the last passage to share with you is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. A nice passage that characterizes the work of eldering, proper eldering, I think. Paul says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. The word there for being poured out is the word spendo. It's where we get the word spent. The reality is you're going into a work where you are going to be poured out as a drink offering. And you don't pour yourself out. there. That's a divine passive. In other words, the one who's holding the pitcher is our heavenly father. And he's going to pour you out in Teopisca for his own glory. Let him spend you and your family, Lance, for his own glory. There's nothing comfy, nothing easy about a call to leadership in the bride. Nothing comfy or easy about it. It's a fight. It requires hard training in the gym. It involves careful and serious toil in God's word. We're to agonize over our lives and the lives of those that we're walking with, pursuing true godliness. We are to pursue, like a heat-seeking missile, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and meekness. And ultimately, our greatest privilege is to be poured out and spent as a drink offering to the living God. This morning, later in the morning, we're going to lay hands on Lance Keeling and ordain him as a pastor and church planter. Y'all need to know that we have searched him and found him approved. We'll set Lance aside for the next few minutes, though, and come back to you. You can still engage and listen. While this first section has been primarily to you, not especially, but primarily to you, this is going to engage the rest of us in the next few minutes. And you're going to see what Lance and Sarah's Keeling journey back to Teopisca has to do with us engaging Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 1. I encourage you to memorize as we go along. We're going so slow. I don't know if you'll have a better chance in your whole lifetime to memorize a whole book of the Bible. And you can do that. Trust me. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. This morning, all we're going to look at is that last little phrase, whom he appointed heir of all things. Would you think about this for the next few minutes? God appointed his son as heir of of all things. He appointed his son to be the recipient of his inheritance. There's some words that are brought out or that, that are in the Greek here that some tenses that I want to bring out to help you understand how important this is. These first two verses, verses one and two of Hebrews chapter one, have what's called aorist tenses in these verbs. Aorist tense would be like for us past tense. Tenses matter. I was thinking about this. Every now and again, I will actually volunteer to go to the grocery store. Now, if Christy asks me, have you gone to the grocery store or are you going to the grocery store? If it's, have you gone, I've gone to the grocery store, that's good news because it's actually been accomplished. If I say I'm going to the grocery store, she knows there's a likelihood that it probably won't happen. Tenses matter. And in this case, tenses matter in these first two verses. Let me show you the tenses. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke. 
That's an aorist tense. In Greek, that means it's past tense, and it is contained, it's finished, it's complete. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. We don't need any new messages. The next aorist tense is in verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, also contained. He has spoken. We don't need any new books in our Bible. We don't even need any new prophets. We don't need any new words because the message is complete. He has spoken is past tense. And the next one is, whom he appointed, past tense, the heir of all things. The last one is, through whom also he created the earth. There's an emphasis on these things already being finished and final and perfected. The prophet spoke Christ spoke, Christ was appointed heir, and Christ created. There's an emphasis here on completion and perfection of God's work in Christ. The rest of the morning, we're just going to consider his appointment, final and complete, as, as heir. Now, I was thinking about our context of who this letter was written to, who this sermon was written to, really. Written to a Hellenistic Hebrew church, likely a Hebrew church in Rome. Now, I hope you remember my definition a few weeks ago of Hellenistic. That means that they were non-native, non-Greek speak or non-Hebrew speaking Jews, but they spoke Greek. They were outside of the central location of God's people there in Israel, but they were living actually out on the periphery in the Roman Empire, all over, spread all over the empire. The Hellenistic Jew, you, might, you should realize, this was probably a sore subject when you start talking the word inheritance. In the mind of the Jew, an inheritance, their inheritance in the strictest sense, in the most, I guess, tangible sense, was the promised land that had been promised to Abram. And I suspect this would be a sore subject for these guys because they were not living on that promised land. They were part of what's called the diaspora or the dispersion. They were part of the group of Jews that lived all over the Roman Empire that were dispersed through the Assyrian exile and the Babylonian exile. 700 years and 500 years before Christ. And they're living all over the Roman Empire, not living on their inheritance. Somebody starts writing to them and talking to them about inheritance. I just can't imagine that that wasn't sort of a sore subject. I wonder if their eyes weren't rolling when they first heard the word heir. But then when it hit them, whoa, wait a second, heiress tense, he has been appointed heir. While it may have been a sore subject for them, I bet once the reality of what's being said here sunk in that it's cool salve for a wound, maybe even encouragement. Because the reason they're not living on Israel anymore or on the promised land anymore is because Israel had not been a faithful heir. They'd been an unfaithful heir and had been scattered abroad. So you can understand why, hopefully, why that would be a sore subject. And then yet maybe an encouragement when they realize, oh, wait a second, Christ was a faithful heir. Now, a little history the Hebrews church would have had that we don't have. A little history that will help us better. The land the Hellenistic Hebrews weren't on, i.e. the promised land, was promised to a man named Abram. And it was a type of inheritance. Numbers in Deuteronomy, a big portion of numbers and a big section of Deuteronomy is saturated with inheritance talk. And even details about how to divide up the inheritance with God's people. For Abraham, for Israel, their mindset about inheritance had to do with the promised land, at least initially. Now, this is ironic for me. Three years ago, I had the chance to go to this promised land and actually walk the ground there. I was on my sabbatical, and we went to visit um, a family there. And it was sort of, honestly, anticlimactic. I went there, I was looking for milk and honey. Honestly, I wanted to see a place where milk and honey's flowing. And I looked around, and I didn't really see any milk and honey. What I saw was dirty, rocky, and unimpressive. 
Now, 2,000 year, 2, years is not a very long time in terms of changes, drastic changes in topography. Possibly the land was a little bit different, but it wouldn't be dramatically different. It likely looked a lot like what we were looking at. One thing I considered as I saw this land that was sort of anticlimactic is one difference that these people would have seen as they were inheriting it and standing on it and moving in it or being drawn from it is that this inheritance was inhabited at the time that they moved into it, unlike the time that I was there. It wasn't inhabited by another, unless you want to call the Palestinians inhabiting it. In some ways, I want you to view this perspective on the land as inheritance, as inheritance 101. I'm sort of breaking this down in sort of collegiate level classes. Inheritance 101, freshman level reality. This land is and was to be their inheritance. Now, in studying this some more, I found inheritance 201. There are glimpses in the Old Testament of Israel being God's inheritance. 101 is the land being Israel's inheritance. 201 is Israel being God's inheritance. Turn to Exodus chapter 34. Turning to, I think, one of my favorite passages of Scripture, the divine conundrum. Moses has asked God to show him his glory. And God said, well... You won't survive that, so what I'll do is I'll stuff you in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass by and let you see just a glimpse of my receding glory as I pass by. And as I pass by, I'm going to declare to you my name. And that's what he does. Just because, for the sake of context, because I don't want to miss it. Verse 6 of chapter 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. I love that definition so far. And if that's where God had stopped, Rob Bell would be right. Everybody would be in heaven. For God's forgiving iniquity and sin and gracious. But his definition continues. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. It seems Moses heard the whole definition. Watch what he does. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and he worshiped. And he said, if now I've found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. Please, Lord, dwell among us for it's a... Shiny, sharp, wise, holy, capable, righteous people. And it would be an appropriate place for you to dwell. He doesn't say that. He says, it's a stiff-necked people, and please pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your, watch, inheritance. Take that in and go, wait a second. He just said, we're homely. We're sinful. Please let us live in the first part of your definition, though in reality, in practice, we are in the second part of the definition. Please forgive our iniquity and sin. Please forgive the fact that we are stiff-necked and hard-headed. God, I know we're rocky and unimpressive, stiff-necked even, but like you reckon this land flowing with milk and honey, reckon us desirable. Though we're not, Like you reckon this land ours, reckon us yours. That's the prayer there. And do you see 101 informing 201? Land as inheritance informs Israel as God's inheritance. Informs the gospel as we saw connections last week with this Christ's finished work. The promises of God find their yes in Christ. That's how that divine conundrum is reconciled. This concept, inheritance 201 of Israel being God's inheritance, is all over our Old Testaments. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah. Like the promised land, Israel was dirty, rocky, unimpressive, and inhabited by another. Paul said, we too were by nature children of wrath. We also needed to be earned by conquest. 
And in the case of the believing Jews, and in our case, it was by the conquest of the cross. Now turn to Psalm chapter 2. We're getting close to bringing this together. There are two psalms that are sort of the key to interpreting the book of Hebrews, or at least the first chapter of Hebrews. And those psalms you can keep in view and you can study on your own as families are Psalm chapter two or Psalm number two and Psalm number one ten. Psalm number two has to do with the royal son. Psalm one ten has to do with royal priest. Now listen to this psalm having to do with royal son. We know that this psalm is in view because it's even referenced verbatim in Hebrews chapter one. The writer of the book of Hebrews has this psalm in one hand as he's writing chapter 1. So for us to try and interpret chapter 1, we would be ridiculous and stupid to not grab psalm Psalm number 2. So listen to these words. It's going to take us to inheritance 301. Psalm number 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Well, he who sits in the heavens laughs at that. He who sits in the heavens laughs when the kings of the earth Rage and plot in vain and set themselves together and take counsel together. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision and he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is a key verse right here. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. That's the inheritance, 301. He says, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. Man, I love that imagery. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Do you see the fingerprints of the gospel all over that? Do you hear propitiation in that? Take refuge in Christ so that you can be shielded from the wrath of the holy God. We're saved by God the Son, from God the Father. That's gospel right there. And our only hope is to kiss the Son, pay homage to Him, serve Him. Because guess what? He inherited the nations. He's inherited, according to Hebrews chapter 1, all things. The nations were granted to the royal Son, and in Christ's case, the nations and creation they sit on. Their property, their borders, everything in them belongs to the Son. He's getting it all. Joshua chapter 14. Don't turn there. Just listen to this. Joshua chapter 14 verse 9. This is other information the Hebrew people would have been aware of that we're not aware of necessarily that we need to grab to understand what it means, all things. And Moses swore on that day saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance. Talking about 101, inheritance 101. It'll be an inheritance for you and your children forever because you've wholly followed the Lord my God. Did they? No. And that's why the Hellenistic Jews are not living in Israel. You didn't wholly follow the Lord your God. The land goes, the inheritance goes to the one who did. And guess why Christ gets it all? Because he wholly followed the Father perfectly, obediently. He gets it all. In Numbers chapter 26, listen, just listen. Numbers chapter 26, verses 53 and 54 tell us something else about the inheritance. Among these, the land shall be divided for inheritance according to the number of the names. 
To a large tribe, you shall give a big old large inheritance. To a wee tribe, you shall give a small inheritance. Every tribe shall be given its inheritance in proportion to its list. You want to know why Christ gets it all? Because he's so great. If the big tribe gets a big piece of property, then yes, it makes sense that our Jesus gets it all. Now, now this that we engage first and this that we engage second come together. What does this mean for the Hebrews church? <clears throat> what does it mean for the Keeling family as they deploy back to Teopisca? What does this mean for Jake and Steph? For Jeff and Pam? For Armand, who stood here last week? For Derek and Casey? For Renee? What does this mean for you who work at L3 or Rubbermaid or Starbucks? What does it mean for those who lead worship, maybe worldwide? What does it mean for those who sell tires or make lunches or fold clothes? What does it mean for those who put on backpacks and step neck deep into the world in pursuit of an education every day? What does Christ as heir of all things mean? Knowing that Christ has been appointed, past tense, heir of all things, it's got to impact our thoughts, our speech, our priorities, our everything. I think of this from the point of view as a preacher. How does this influence my preaching? How should it influence our missions? How should it influence our ministry? Is the character of my preaching begging or, for emphasis this time, declaring? Is it begging? Please follow Jesus. Let He's knocking on the door of your wee heart. Let Him into that wee door. Please let Him be Lord of your life. I'm not begging anything. I'm declaring an ultimate reality that He is King of kings and Lord of lords already. He is already appointed heir of all things, not some things. All things. Man, that's got to influence you as you go back to Mexico, man. You're not going back trying to talk people into voting for Jesus, some future president of the world. Ain't no election. He's been appointed heir of all things already. Man, that's got to inform and shape and equip us in more than just the preaching, the pulpit, and in missions or in ministry. It's got to inform how your disposition at L3. You don't step off being a jerk, but you step off in confidence knowing that my God is King of kings and Lord of lords already. I'm not campaigning. I'm declaring. Man, that's got to shape something. King Jesus is who we're talking about. We are commissioned to declare in the world as an accomplished fact, Christ as Lord and King. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority. Not some. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Do you hear that tone in Psalm chapter 2? Rule the nations. And there's a boldness that should come in our ministry as we step off into city council or we step off into Rubbermaid or L3 or into the law office or wherever you might work. A boldness. And the message that we declare is about King Jesus, heir of all things. We pray for that this morning for Lance. We pray it for our elders. We pray it for our families abroad. We pray it for our families here. That you have a confidence and a boldness in that reality as Christ appointed heiress tense, heir of all things. Lance and elders, we all come up here, please? <clears throat> These next couple of minutes, we are going to lay hands on Lance. You should know as they come up that we have not been hasty in laying on hands, I would say that we've been reluctant. And you need to know, not reluctant because of Lance. Reluctant because that's this position of the elders at this church. We don't want to rush into something like this. We're careful about this. Lance brought it up a few weeks ago, and we looked at it for the first time. We're like, well, we need to pray through this. We need to talk about this. It wasn't something that was on our radar because we're not 
trying to count heads that we've laid hands on. But we looked at it and said, you know what? This dude's been well searched. He and his wife have laid their lives and their family and their worship open and bare to a lot of folks to be scrutinized and examined so that they will be properly examined and properly equipped to go back to the field. So in these next few minutes, Steve Roberts is going to pray for them as we lay hands on our brother. Father, we come to you this morning humbled by your word. Father, I pray for myself and for this body that your name is hallowed. Father, that we are grateful and thankful that you have decreed, you have appointed that you have placed us in Christ for your glory and your good pleasure. So, Father, we offer this prayer this morning as a grateful, thankful people for all the blessings we receive in Christ and have in him. Every spiritual blessing. Grateful and thankful, Father, that you have poured out your grace on us, that we can hear and understand and walk with you. And, Father, that's our prayer for Tia Father, it's a humbleness that we send and go with Lance. Knowing that we are completely and totally dependent upon you and the finished work of Christ. Father, we pray just as we sung this morning that your kingdom would come, your glory would come on Teopiscata. Father, I pray for Lance. Uh, Father, for wisdom, insight, but mostly worship. Father, as he is a messenger of truth that you go before, cause the ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to understand and follow you. Father, we thank you for the time we've had to spend with Lance and Sarah and Joshua and Caleb, uh, equipping us to send and them to be sent, to be members of one another, pick each other up, encourage one another. Father, we're grateful for that time. And Father, we just pray for the time to come. Uh, pour out your grace again, Father that we'd be faithful and attentive and loving. Father, for your glory, for your honor, for your sake alone. Father, again, we thank you for the precious gift, all that we have in Christ, and we pray in his precious name. Amen. All right, stay up here for a second, Lance. I got uh, a couple things for you. We have an uh, ordination certificate that's been signed by the elders. Uh, be proudly displayed somewhere. Mm -hmm. Yes. If you don't have that, you're not really ordained. <laughs> we have a Bible. This is uh, an ESV study Bible, calfskin, maroon calfskin. Came from maroon cow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Smells good, unused. It's been written in the... I wrote in the front this morning. My handwriting's not great, but um, I was the only one around to do it. So you can read it, though. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. First Peter chapter 5. Take that, bro. Have a seat. Thank you, man. Yeah, will you feed the Lord's Supper with us in a second? Okay. Okay. I'll, I'll show you how to do that. <laughs> Okay.
All right, we're going to take the Lord's Supper now. And uh, in some ways, this next couple minutes, let me just share with you sort of a summary that I didn't really share in this last part. As you teach or preach, there's certainly a beckoning and an urging and imploring. But realize as you teach or preach or declare, you're calling people to come into alignment with who's really king and Lord already. That's got to inform how you speak with people. It's got to shape your disposition as you present Christ to someone. You're calling them to become servants of the Most High. You're escorting them into the ultimate reality that Christ is already king. He owns the nations and the ground they sit on. Now, for our Lord's Supper, we're actually going to look at Inheritance 401. Ephesians chapter 1, just listen. Ephesians chapter 1 is sort of like Paul just going crazy in Greek. There's really, he's just like a run-on sentence, the whole first chapter almost. You can just tell he's just gushing these realities. Listen to this word. Y'all can come on up, guys. You're not going to bother me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he's blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. See, that's 401, is that we have an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward us or toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his, his glorious inheritance in the saints." And 401 is that this crazy story, this inheritance story, doesn't stop at the land. It doesn't stop at Israel being God's inheritance. It doesn't stop at the nations and the property that they sit on being Christ's inheritance. Where it ends is the scandal that we're participating as co-heirs. It's crazy when you think about it. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Paul says we too were by nature children of wrath. The Jewish people, in other words. We were dead too. But God made us alive together in Christ. That's good news right there. You're dead, you're made alive. But then he goes on to say, but now we've been seated with the victor in heavenly places. What? The fact that I've been spared eternal damnation is scandal enough. But now you're going to seat me with the victor? And I'm in fact going to be co-heirs with the victor? I'm going to enjoy the spoils of his victory while the reason that he suffered was because of me? That's why this gospel is such good news. And that's why it's a scandal. is because it just doesn't make sense. It's too good to be true, but yet it's true. We are co-heirs with Christ. I like as we take this supper in these next couple minutes to be mindful of that reality. 
Romans chapter 8, verse 16 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. As we take this supper, we remember his suffering, and we invite our own. Whatever the cost, we want to partake of this work together. We want to enjoy his finished work in these next couple minutes. I read one guy that said, man, the way I summarize this is be married to this heir and have all. A woman marries a rich man, she gets what was, what was due the rich man. Man, that's what happens when we marry Christ. Let's enjoy this supper as the bride of Christ. Lance, come on up, I'll show you what you can do.
and I went on a date last night to um, Dallas, and uh, we're driving down Lover's Lane. That's where you're supposed to go when you're on a date, I don't know if you know that. <laughs> driving down Lover's Lane, going to Celebration Restaurant in Dallas, and we're looking at these houses, man. I'm just like some serious mansions. Some of them are like castles. You could see some of them kind of offset from Lover's Lane. I wouldn't want to live right on Lover's Lane because there's so much traffic and all, but pretty awesome houses. And I was driving by thinking, man, how cool would it be to live in one of those houses? I mean, seriously, I, I wasn't full on coveting. <laughs> I wasn't, but I was marveling. And I'm like, man, even the roofs are awesome. Like these shingles stacked and stuff. And then I remembered, oh yeah, we're co-heirs with Christ. What is that really in comparison to that? I can spend this life here doing without that house, knowing what I'm a co-heir of already. The nations and everything they stand on. You know what I mean? It's, that reality should shape, it's not just some sort of theological notion. It should shape your perspective on life. You can endure some severe trials when you know there's an answer coming. You could drive a clunker knowing that I got a million dollars coming. Now, that's a worldly illustration. I'm not saying everybody, drive, everybody needs to drive clunkers or you don't love Jesus. But I'm saying you can handle some of these temporary things that are happening in our life going, man, I'm a co-heir with Christ. Let's enjoy that together as we take and eat. Be married to this heir and take all. Let's drink. God, you are so good. We are so thankful for what you've accomplished in Christ. We celebrate and enjoy King Jesus this morning. We love you, Lord. We continue worshiping you, enjoying you in song and giving. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Kids did an amazing job this morning. I mean, you totally did. Y'all weren't a distraction. You may have been to, a, I guess, in the nearest sense, but I didn't hear anybody. Um, you were amazing. God is good, and I thank y'all, uh, kids and parents. Parents, if you're thinking, man, I didn't really get any of that because I was wrestling. Uh, I didn't see anybody doing that, but if you did, let me encourage you. Just take heart because this, this will pass eventually. And the kid or lad or lass gets old enough and they start to engage and you look down and they're paying attention or um, they say something later where you realize they heard something. So, man, it's a good job. A really good job, kids. And good job, parents, for going the distance. We like to have once a month sort of exposure to these youngest ones so they can start to grow into this. So this morning, I feel like it's been a mountaintop morning. When you have a message that engages Christ as King, that's just pure awesomeness. I hope you all were on the mountaintop this morning. I hope as families you'll talk about what this means. Uh, small groups, we'll talk about it this week. Um, it's a sweet truth to enjoy. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this time we've had together this morning. What a sweet, sweet mountaintop morning. We love you and enjoy Christ as King today. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all.